This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. So we are just kicking off a session that is titled Social Networks for Social Justice, The Power of Technology to Do Good, with Ron Brownstein interviewing Ben Rittray. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, ben Rattray is the founder and CEO of Change.org, uh, which, like many uh, institutions in our modern life, didn't exist uh, 10 years ago and is now uh, growing at a, a rapid pace. He is a graduate of Stanford University, the London School of Economics, uh, and he has been listed in Time Magazine's, included in Time Magazine's, 100 Most Influential People in the World in 2012, so congratulations on that, certainly. So let me start with this, uh, before we kind of talk about some of the details about what you do. I think a lot of people in this room would not necessarily be fully aware of kind of uh, the platform that you've created. Talk a little bit about why you created what you did and how it has evolved since you started it. Yeah, great to be here, thanks so much. Uh, So I initially actually wanted to be an investment banker and I went to Stanford for that purpose in part. Uh, And uh, my senior year at Stanford, I. I go home, and uh, one of my younger brothers comes out as gay. And uh, he says, one of the most influential things in my life, he says, uh, the thing that was most painful for him as a closeted young gay American wasn't people that were explicitly anti-gay, but people who refused to stand up and to speak out against them. Uh, And it was hugely influential. I was ashamed for one of the first times in a deep, deep way of my life and sort of reflect about what I wanted to do with my life. And so uh, I went from the track of wanting to be an investment banker to wanting to get involved in social change. Uh, and after a number of years, uh, going to London School of Economics, reading many books, experiencing power in Washington, uh, started Change.org as a platform to organize around issues people care about. So we started this in 2007 and we systemically failed for about three and a half years. Uh, and then over the past year and a half, things have taken off. We're growing by about 2 million new members a month, uh, more than 20 million members around the world, and winning campaigns for change every day. Uh, and if I would identify one uh, thing that is a differentiation between when we failed systemically and when now we're successful is specificity. Uh, it's that in social justice movements, historically, at least over the, certainly the past few decades, there's this inclination for big national or global movements and change. Uh, you know, you want to stop global warming, you want to advance gay rights, you want to end global poverty. Uh, and while those are laudable aims, if you try to do them directly as we try to build a platform for, uh, there's not a lot of uh, specific action you can take that's effective. And what we did, we changed, is starting with the sort of oldest tool in advocacy, petitions, to allow people to petition for very small local incremental change, and that's spreading like wildfire. 
So uh, just go back and explain a little bit. The, so the, the, the tool that people, people use the site to do what? To encourage, to post petitions yep. and to encourage others to sign them? Exactly. It's a very simple petition. People are shocked sometimes. It's just a petition site. Now, saturated in social media and with now the tools to take people who sign a petition and mobilize them as parts of movements. But these are very specific. It's literally three fields. What do you want to change? Who has the power to change it? Uh, and why should people join you? You start the petition, start spreading it through Facebook and Twitter. It's about 20,000 a month that are started, and, and many of them go viral. You, you know, you mentioned the inspiration, but where did the inspiration uh, coalesce into the idea of petitions? How did you focus in on petitions as the way of trying to focus that desire? Well, initial uh, focus wasn't specifically petitions, but using the web to organize people around common objectives. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the story was actually, it was in 2005, I was in D.C., disenchanted with my first experience in, in politics and government. What were you doing? Uh, I was doing sort of uh, consulting, kind of in government consulting for education companies. Just had graduated. Uh, and uh, I end up, you look at sort of this little website called thefacebook.com, 2005, very early, thefacebook.com. And, uh, and you sort of see immediately the capacity for people to come together around personal interests, around photos, around friends. Uh, and I saw these sort of the same technology could be used to organize people around the issues they care about and solve one of the most fundamental problems in social organizing and social justice, which is collective action. It's a very historic structural dilemma where it's extremely expensive, both in time and resources, to organize people around common aims. And by virtue of that, you have you know, citizen sort of aims and objectives are oftentimes less powerful than common special interests who can more effectively organize uh, for their issues. Uh, and so that was the, kind of the genesis of the idea. But we built this superstructure of this massive tool set for people to organize around very large objectives. And it was only after many different experiences to be found that petitions, very specific incremental change, was the most effective way of starting to win campaigns. You know, kind of the shift of the paradigm, I'm thinking it's covered politics for a long time, that historically one of the greatest expenses in politics is finding people who agree with you. And that's what you spend a lot of money on. I think about how Common Cause was founded. Common Cause respond, took out a full-page ad in the New York Times to raise enough money, asked people to send them checks, to raise enough money to do a direct mail campaign, yep. which ultimately provided the seed money that created the organization. MoveOn.org, a generation later, uh, the internet flips the paradigm where people who agree with you can find you instead of you finding them, prospecting for them. They can find you at essentially no cost, and something like Move On grows exponentially faster in the post-98 period than Common Cause was able to do in the first period. I mean, is that sort of the fundamental, I mean, is the twist here that, that people who agree with, in other words, if, if you had to start a petition and go out and prospect through or, or sift through the great mass of America and find the people who agree with you, prohibitively expensive, but the internet makes it possible to turn that around. Yeah, it makes the cost of organizing trivial. Right? You can actually, not just as an organization, but as an individual, mobilize hundreds of thousands of people in real time, which to your point would have been extremely, not just difficult, but really expensive really to do. Really expensive. And so if you look at the actual, the aggregate dollars you would have to raise, if you're, you know, there's a, it's a campaign recently, one of my favorite campaigns uh, just over the past few months related to the presidential election is there's three 16-year-old girls in Montclair, New Jersey, and they're in a civics class, and they find out that there hasn't been a female moderator of a presidential debate in 20 years. Right? There's only one in history. And so they start a petition asking the Presidential Debate Commission right, to accept a female moderator. And over the next uh, two weeks, they get 170,000 people to join. It's this massive social media uh, outcry. They go and protest in front of the Debate Commission, get huge amounts of press on CNN and Fox News and whatnot, uh, and ends up, after about a week, that the Presidential Debate Commission asks the first female moderator in the past 
20 years to moderate. And if you had aggregated the, the expense that would be required right, to actually pay for that kind of campaign in the media, it's millions of dollars. It's millions of dollars. And so what's exciting, I think, now is that can spawn all the time and from any individual. Yeah, and in fact, on direct mail, 2% is considered a good return. So you can see kind of the, the difference. Um, so what have been some of the, you mentioned that, there's the Bank of America, Verizon. What have been the most successful campaigns so far? You know, the campaign that actually uh, that inspired us initially to pivot from these very broad objectives around you know, stopping global warming to very specific change was this incredible campaign about a, a year and a half ago. It was in South Africa. There's a huge global explosion now of campaigns on change.org. And uh, the story is there's a woman that was walking down the street in Cape Town and she gets grabbed and thrown into a shack and raped and almost killed. And the reason is she's a lesbian woman and the man was trying to turn her straight. It's an awful thing called corrective rape. Uh, and a good friend of hers sees this had signed a petition uh, around gay rights in Uganda, and she goes to an internet cafe, starts a petition asking the Minister of Justice of the country to take the issue seriously. And over the next week and a half, 180,000 people from 150 countries take action, embarrasses the government. It's a huge overall media exposure. Uh, and after about a month of campaigning, the government apologizes and Parliament passes a, uh, a bill to have a task force investigate and stop the issue of correct rape after entirely ignoring the issue before. It's an amazing demonstration of people power. How about in the U.S.? What have been the most uh, resonant campaigns? What have had the biggest impact? So the campaigns, uh, the, one of the most, I think, most powerful campaigns from a sort of a public narrative perspective is a Trayvon Martin case. Uh, and so Trayvon Martin, you know, s- you know, 17-year-old African-American kid killed in Florida tragically. And if for about two weeks after that incident, there's almost no media exposure at all. It's a private injustice. And his parents, we connect to them. They start a petition on the site. It goes massively viral. You know, ends up being two million people join the campaign. Spawns many different protests. Becomes certainly more than just the petition. Um, I think the importance isn't just the individual act of now arresting this, his killer, George Zimmerman, and, and prosecuting him, but the public narrative that results, the awareness about this as a tragic situation of young African Americans not being treated fairly in the justice system, or these stand your ground laws about being able to sort of uh, almost without with impunity be able to shoot somebody if they come at you in different states. So that's some of the, the really exciting stuff that we see. Isn't just the direct victories that happen, but the public narrative and shift in mindset that occurs because of them. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but let me ask you, is there, uh, and on Trayvon Martin, I mean, certainly the, the petition had impact, but I, was, I do a starting point with Soledad O'Brien pretty regularly, and they were not waiting. I mean, they were, they were in there pretty soon on, the, on that case as well. But, but I want, what I want to ask you is, um, do, you, do you find a difference in the way that company, because you're now, you have a lot of petitions that are aimed at, at companies to do specific things, uh, and obviously some of, the, some of them have more political implications. Is there a difference in the response between business institutions and political institutions? Yeah, there's a tragic difference, which is politicians are much less responsive to public pressure right now than companies. And part of the reason is it's easier to change your detergent than your congressman. And so the switching costs, I I tell members of Congress this, they love it. Um, The switching costs uh, are just really easy and trivial for most brands. Most brands are in businesses of commodity marketplaces where that sort of public perception of what they do is the biggest value they have. And so if you start to attack that, 
or people uh, on Twitter and Facebook start to attack that, they're very sensitive. Uh, many more staff that are dedicated to sort of observing the sentiments in social media and are much more responsive. Whereas politicians, as oftentimes happens, is a bit lagging in sort of uh, in its application and engagement in social media for actual policy, not just pushing out content, but engaging with people. But even, even from the point of view of companies, I can see how they can be uh, responsive to uh, a campaign about the attributes of a product, like you Jamba Juice and whether they're using biodegradable cups. If you could imagine something like the Chick-fil-A controversy, where it's entirely, it's pretty easy to imagine tens of thousands of people mobilizing on your site saying, stop contributing to groups that you know, promote uh, or, or you know, are, are hostile to, to gay rights. And you know, Ralph Reed organizing tens of thousands of people to send them emails on the other side uh, from the Faith and Freedom Coalition. I mean, is there, I mean, is there a, um, d- d- does, the, does the capacity to organize uh, dilute the inherent polarization uh, in any way? I mean, or, is, or is it just kind of provides another battlefield in which it plays out? I think what's most exciting that we see is there are so many battles that are not pitched partisan mm-hmm. debates that aren't 50-50 on a regular basis, that are these underlying things that aren't actually cultural battles, but still obscure and not change. I'll give you an example. There's a, it's actually a bill that's about to pass in Congress uh, where it used to be the case that it's legal for rental car companies to not return recalled cars. So they can have cars that are dangerous, they don't have to recall, and they got a enterprise in Hertz, got a loophole in the Department of Transportation uh, uh, bill, and that allowed them to do this. And in 2004, there were uh, two girls, tragically 25 and 23, who rent a PT Cruiser and drive it down this, uh, the road, and per the concerns of the recall, it flames out, hits a semi, and they both die. And their mom uh, ends up having a civil lawsuit for the next 10 years, or next eight years, uh, and wins. Wins a civil lawsuit. But the, but the law didn't change, still hadn't changed. And it was only after she starts a petition on the site, embarrasses Enterprise, gets more than 100,000 people to join, is going to be on the Today Show, that Enterprise retracts its position and changes the policy. And that's not, that's not controversial. There's so many underlying, in fact, an order of magnitude more than you see, because all you see are the ones that are the most yeah. pitched and partisan. It's interesting. So as you say, you, you've kind of evolved from the big, broad global to the more specific and local. But I've also seen you quoted as saying something to the effect, we want to move from moments to movements. Mm-hmm. So are you comfortable with where you are? And, and, and what, you're, what you're basically saying is the more tangible, the more narrow the bigger the impact you can have. Is that where you envision this in five years or seven years? Or would you be disappointed if you're not kind of making the circle back to figuring out how to influence the bigger, broader issues? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you look at kind of the trajectory of most social movements, most social justice movements, uh, you end up almost always starting small. You wouldn't go in 1964 to LBJ in the context of no organizing and say you should really pass the Civil Rights Act, right? Ten years before, you refused to walk to the back of a bus, and you sit at lunch counters, and you went incrementally from families to friends to towns to cities to country, and that's the kind of tool set we're trying to build that allows you to start, get a foothold with local change, and that aggregates across the country, goes from one victory to ten to a hundred. I mean, one very small example is there's uh, you've got a, there's an attempted movement around ending plastic bags in America, right, by virtue of increasing the tax to internalize the third-party costs of plastic bags, and 
Uh, it's just almost impossible. It to succeeded in Bethesda, Maryland. I yes, can tell so you. It, cha- it changes in individual cities. This is how it happens. And the way you win nationally is by winning locally. And there's this great case where a 13-year-old girl who has an eighth-grade project about four months ago starts a, a campaign asking her own town to pass a plastic bags tax. Uh, and then the plastics industry, brilliant move, gets a state law passed in uh, in the state of Illinois to make it illegal to pass local plastic bags taxes. So she responds to petition the governor of the state to veto the bill. And after getting more than 100,000 people to join, huge media narrative, uh, the governor calls her on her home phone line about a month ago, says, I've seen your campaign, I've been inspired, I'm going to veto the bill. And in response to that now, you have all these young girls that are starting campaigns around the country in their towns trying to cast plastic bags taxes. And so you don't win it with one victory, you win hundreds of them, but you start with a single one. And um, so the, uh, uh, does that, as you, you were describing it as kind of aggregating up, uh, uh, do you see a way to tackle some of the bigger issues that you would be concerned about? Um, how does this, for example, translate into, say, climate change? Take one example. Uh, 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 how would this platform ultimately, in your mind, three years from now, five years from now, President Obama wins a second term, 2013, it's on the table. Can you influence debates like that? Yeah, I think definitely so. I mean, first, we don't take official positions on policies, but I'll give you an example on climate change. I would bet that instead of having a very large national campaign around Congress as an entity, and Congress doesn't make decisions, right? Members of Congress make decisions, and all politics is local. And so if instead of a very large campaign in in the U.S. around Congress, if you had 435 13-year-old girls and 435 districts who start local campaigns with incredible personal narratives around why it's important for their generation that we pass climate change, then you'd have a materially different public narrative. Another good example uh, is around immigration. This is happening already. Where there's a very, to your point, a very pitched partisan, divisive 50-50 battle on immigration at a national level. But when you, in, you sort of look at the way that policy impacts real people's lives, you end up changing minds. And so uh, we have these, on a regular basis, kids that will start petitions in defense of their friends who are going to be deported to countries they've never known. These are Dream Act students. There's tens of thousands of graduate high school every year. There's a, it's a case where um, there's a kid who is brought into the country at age two from Honduras. His dad dies. His mom's in a, in a mental asylum. Ends up being the case that he's hugely successful. And only when he goes to pay a parking ticket does he find out right before going to college that he's not documented. Didn't he even know. And he's going to be deported to a country he's never known, doesn't speak English or doesn't speak Spanish because his parents wanted him to be very American. And when you ask people that question, right, should that person be deported, you have a very different sentiment than about illegal immigrants, broadly speaking. It's the aggregation of all those different campaigns that both intrinsically fight sort of the injustice that might occur for those individual stories and instrumentally build broader movements for bigger national change. Uh, you know, you mentioned that many of the causes are kind of non-ideological, but certainly the extent they are ideological, it kind of starts in the center, moves, goes to the left, I think, on the side in terms of what have been the, the biggest priorities. Is there a concern conservative analog to this, or do you expect one? We see more and more conservative campaigns on a regular basis. In fact, what's what's funny is a lot of the campaigns around corporate accountability are started by by conservatives. We don't know, and we engage with petition creators on a regular basis when they start viral petitions. There's a a case where in uh, in Target, the company Target ends up uh, about a week before Thanksgiving last year, they announced that 
all their workers the first time are going to have to work on Thanksgiving. And there's a, a worker who uh, is in Kansas and starts a petition, gets 150,000 people to join, condemning Target's actions, which are anti-family, seem to be. And this is a Ron Parr supporter who's just like, this just seems wrong. And there's so many campaigns, this campaign around uh, Enterprise Rent-A-Car that you know, doesn't have to recall cars because of a loophole and a transportation bill just seems wrong. And so you really have these kind of transpartisan campaigns that don't hit a specific What, what about ideology. like a purely conservative? For example, like if someone wanted to go on and uh, start a petition to boycott Amazon because Jeff Bezos supported the gay marriage amendment in Washington State. If someone wanted to do that, post a petition to boycott Amazon, could they do it on the site? Oh, absolutely. It may have happened already. I mean, there's 20,000 campaigns launched every single month. It's sort of like YouTube. It's totally an open platform. Anyone, anywhere can start a campaign. I mean, most of these campaigns are about changing things, right? About changing the status quo. And so it tends toward things that you know, are about social justice. But it's certainly the case that, in the, you know, the case of, um, of Chick-fil-A. It's the case yeah. of Chick-fil-A you referenced. Yeah. It's a number of campaigns on the site uh, asking for universities in particular to revoke Chick-fil-A's right to sell on campus uh, because they fund anti-gay movements. You had campaigns on the site that were the opposite, that were asking uh, sort of different universities to affirm the free speech rights of Chick-fil-A. But what you find is campaigns that are building people up, campaigns that seem just and seem to people resonant with the kind of the moral values they have just seem right, tend to be more value, uh, sort of viral. So things that are seem to be, frankly, in some cases, uh, sort of regressive in, in many people's perspective, tend not to be shared as virally and don't take off as much. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, thinking about how these two things are, the two things that are happening simultaneously, certainly we are more networked and connected than ever, and the ability of an individual to, as you say, communicate Almost, it's, you, you have mass communication without the mass media yeah. available now almost to individuals. Uh, so we are more connected than ever. On the other hand, uh, politically, we are as polarized as ever. Uh, highest level of party line voting in Congress since the late 19th century. Uh, entirely possible that in this election, Barack Obama will, will win 80% of non-white votes and only 40% of whites. A uh, gap between the way presidents are, are viewed by voters, the opposite party, the widest it's ever been, and getting worse each president, not just one, you know, from Clinton to Bush to Obama, a wider gap. Um, do you think the technology, the, the networking technology is a force that is knitting together and bridging our differences or one that is exacerbating and polarizing our differences? Well, it certainly has a capacity for either. There's this sort of concern of the filter bubble, right? That as you have increasing networks around single sort of friend groups, you're going to have filtering out all the things you don't believe and filtering in only those things that reaffirm your prejudices. Um, that's one trend. The other trend that we're most excited about is transcending politics through storytelling. And so things that are really divisive, I mentioned around uh, immigration, that seem uh, not building people up, but actually dividing people against each other. When you hear about how policies impact real people's lives, in particular in local contexts, you tend to have a lot more solidarity, a, a much greater sense of mutual support. And so what we're excited about isn't focused so much on the national debates, the partisan pitch battles that do divide people on a regular basis, but what's happening locally in real people's communities on a daily basis. There tends to be a lot more agreement on local change than there is on national change. So you feel that at the local level this transcends difference? Uh, at the local level, there are things that are much more personal to people, saving a local park or changing, you know, there's a teacher that's fired for being gay and you know the teacher. There's a great example there where there's a huge pitch partisan battle around the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which is effectively giving uh, non-discrimination policy for gay and lesbian Americans. In 29 states in the country, 
you can be fired for being gay. It's very controversial at a national level. And then there's a campaign about a year ago where there's a teacher outside of Oregon uh, who ends up being fired for being gay. And parents are outraged and they start a campaign and thousands join and hundreds go protest and they end up, a uh, superintendent apologizes and gives the teacher his job back. What's notable was the overwhelming public support, even of those people. When you asked in the abstract whether they'd support sort of special policies for gay and lesbian Americans, wouldn't have supported them. When you look at the particulars in their community, there's much more sense of shared perspective and support. So how do you kind of, and not that you are responsible for, uh, for balancing these two, but as you kind of look at the centrifugal and the centripetal forces that are at work here, um, which do you think in the long run, are, are we in the long run, or are we on a trajectory to become more united or more divided as a society oh. with these tools? I think absolutely more united. It's a sense of solidarity, of seeing the kind of intimate insight into the way other people think, other people experience life, and recognizing that it's not about policies in the abstract. It's about how things go in individual experiences. And in that sense of solidarity, if you look at just the trajectory of social justice movements, the individual expansion of rights, the expansion of the sense of fairness and justice is expanding over the past 200 years and accelerating in many ways. You see around, around gay rights in America. It's a really great example. Like many people think gay rights is the civil rights movement of our time. And over the past 15 years, such incredible rapidity of solidarity, of empathy, of a sense of, of sort of shared uh, consciousness where you have this I think, overwhelming support now, especially young, young people, about gay rights. And that shows that people, when they're short, shared storytelling and shared information about how people live their lives, there tends to be greater empathy and solidarity. So let me ask you the grubby question. How do you keep the doors open on this thing? How is, what's the finance? My I, mom I, asked me this and all the I, time. Yes, I, I, speak, I speak on behalf of the entire media here saying, what is the financial model that works uh, that allows you to keep this going? Yeah, so we, we have an advertising platform that allows uh, nonprofits to connect to people who care about the issues they work on. And so it's a sort of sponsored petition similar to sponsored videos on YouTube, sponsored tweets on Twitter. And so if someone comes onto the site and cares about, let's say, environmental sustainability, the Sierra Club might be featured as a sponsored petition they can join. And so they pay for advertising that way. Uh, and that, that is enough to keep it. How big a staff? It's 150 staff around the world. Wow. And we have, you know, 20 million members. That's it's, a lot of sponsored it's petition about, It's a lot of sponsored petitions. It's all about scale. Right? The internet's all about massive scale. The, the number of people we should be able to mobilize is an order of magnitude more than almost any organization should be able to previously. And it's not because we're better. It's because these sort of exponential returns, the exponential growth of the internet. And that's just amazing. And the capacity for sort of the world historical change is greater now because of that facility, that rapid expansion. And because of that, we have more members that are able to generate more revenue. We were talking about this a little bit last night on a panel. Uh, we are heading toward, if we have not passed, a billion dollars spent on television advertising in this presidential campaign. Uh, and most of it going to nine states and 6% of the population. I mean, you're at the point where it would have been cheaper to buy every undecided voter in Ohio a television uh, at this point. Um, uh, but the... Uh, hi, I'm Mitt Romney. I'm here with your 40-inch plasma. <laughs> I, I would appreciate your consideration. It's a great strategy, actually. Yeah, it, it probably would be. Um, but I'm just interested in your thought about... You mentioned politicians and talking, you were talking about Congress in, in responding. Uh, what about the way that... Do you, do you think the balance of the way that we we communicate in the race for president, which is kind of along with the Super Bowl, one of our big civic activities that involve everybody uh, in the country. Uh, do you think the balance is going to shift? And ultimately, is it, is it more effective to try to reach people as individuals online? Or do you still see this kind of carpet bombing television approach dominating going out into the future? Yeah, I think 2024. One of the most exciting things I see, maybe 2028, I think one of the exciting things I see is that disruption where 
you know, politicians don't care about money per se. They care about votes. And the means by which to get votes is to advertise massively or to expose a message to many people in a convincing manner. Now, fundamentally, if you get enough people to do that on your behalf, it's as valuable, if not more so. So a billion dollars seems like a lot of money, but if you can aggregate the value of peer-to-peer connections of 300 million people talking amongst each other about candidates and the support, the value there is much, much right. greater. And so I think as you have a disaggregation of centralized media and the capacity for people you know, basically receiving information through channels of friends instead of mainstream broadcasts, you're going to undermine the value of every, every different dollar and increase the value of personal relationships. Now... It's not going to happen tomorrow. It may not happen in four years, but that's where we're headed, where sort of peer-to-peer communication facilitated content through those networks is going to be much more influential than a billion dollars might yeah, be. Yeah, that's a horizontal communication as opposed to kind of the vertical coming down, you know, the track. Money goes from all over the country into the campaign headquarters, is processed and comes back out as television ads. Yep. Kind of that, that, that kind of a triangle almost, but a vertical form of communication. You're talking about mobilizing people to communicate in a horizontal way across the networks of their own acquaintances. And certainly there's a lot more money and effort going into that in each, in each successive campaign by the candidates, but they're still betting the most heavily on kind of the old tool. Overwhelmingly, and I think that's we're just in the earliest stages. It used to be the case you have a specific opinion and you propagate that to an audience of people that are circumscribed by like, you know, geographic proximity. Now almost any act you take, at least certainly in younger generations, is propagated across a friend network via Twitter or Facebook. And as you have that increased information spread, I mean, most of my friends, and certainly my younger brother's friends, are consuming content through Facebook right, and through Twitter. And that content isn't just produced by mainstream media, it's produced by themselves and right. friends of theirs. And so that content consumption, as it increases amongst horizontally friends and friends of friends, you end up having that sort of, I think, destabilizes the traditional top-down communication mechanism and undermines the value of an incremental dollar for any campaign and increases the value of convincing people to propagate your message. You know, to your point, with my younger son, I'm watching my younger son and the way he consumes media, I was thinking that a great investment for Obama would be to invest in ads in surf videos. <laughs> so, um, uh, but uh, I want to ask you one last thing and then bring in the audience. To what extent, though, is all of this uh, uh, the preserve of kind of uh, an upper-middle-class educated, college-educated, college-plus kind of slice of society. Um, is, is what's happening here uh, truly engaging all Americans, or is this ultimately a way in which one slice is finding more like-minded folks, but not really reaching beyond their, their, their slice? This is one of the things we're most excited about, and, and frankly surprised about to some extent, uh, is it's empowering the least powerful in many cases. The biggest differentiation are those that didn't have any voice. And the two, I think, most consistent examples we see on the site, one is foreclosures. It's a huge number of campaigns, not a national campaign around foreclosures, but local campaigns, thousands of them, of people that are kicked out of their homes are going to be because they cannot even reach their loan officer at a bank. And by starting a petition, embarrassing oftentimes the local bank, they're able to get media awareness and stay in their homes. And so these are people that are, in many cases, the most downtrodden. And the second is this case around, around immigration and people that actually aren't even legal in this country, legally sort of documented in this country, who are now able to start campaigns on their own behalf or on the behalf of their friends and get them to stop from being deported. And, and of course, just this is going to button up a point we were talking about before. Ultimately, uh, you're not going to be able to launch petition campaigns on behalf of the millions of people facing foreclosure. That is the kind of issue that ultimately has to be dealt with by some kind of policy if it's going to be dealt with at all. But your view is that by you're basically building awareness 
case by case that ultimately translates into support for more systemic action? Yeah, when people recognize that foreclosure is not about those people, these people who are irresponsible, who should have known better, but actually see the intimate insight into real people who are directly impacted and clearly in some cases very unjust circumstances who become this very large public narrative chipping away at the false suspicion that there's irresponsible homeowners. Hmm. All right, let's uh, bring in some questions from the audience. I think we have one right over here. If you could identify yourself when you, uh, when you ask your question. My name is uh, Barry Jagoda. Uh, I'm wondering what uh, restrictions you may place on these petition campaigns. Uh, what about the problem of uh, uh, vigilanteism? Or to give you a specific example, let's say a couple of us decided that uh, Diane Sawyer was ruining ABC News because she'd moved to tabloid journalism. Is that the kind of campaign you would accept? So we don't filter at all any campaign. So just like YouTube, anybody can post a video. Anybody can start a petition. And what you tend to find is the kind of petitions that expand, especially those that expand virally, resonate in a fairly deep way with a large group of people and tend not to be the kind of divisive, let's say hateful, or just things that you might be very skeptical of. And so it is the case that in some situations there will be petitions that are dubious or people are concerned about, but they're flagged almost always by the community. They are oftentimes removed. Uh, But overwhelmingly, the kind of campaigns that get started, and especially that expand and win, are those that are a sort of positive social change that many people agree with. Let's see. Uh, In the front here? Hold on, hold on. You need the mic. Just identify yourself, please. I'm Danielle Weiss. I'm a physician. I actually haven't gone on your um, website, but it sounds amazing, and I love the dialogue. And I'm just curious how this interacts with the international community, and also for maybe the um, someone like myself. I'm just curious about what the overall picture is. Do you map it out in terms of what are the hot topics and make it a real dialogue? So right now, we just hired in about 15 countries, uh, a lot in Asia, Latin America in particular, and all Western Europe. Uh, And what's exciting is more than a million new members a month that are joining the site. Uh, And you end up having, in in countries that previously didn't have lots of online activity and organizing at all, India uh, and the Philippines are great examples, immense numbers of victories in India, in particular around the issue of corruption, where instead of large national campaigns around corruption, it's individual officers who are requesting bribes, being exposed now through petitions and getting censured. And so uh, I think the international stuff for us is one of the most exciting because the sort of magnitude of needed improvement of justice is in many ways much greater than we even have in the United States. Do you capture information about the people who sign the petitions, emails or... Capture email information and sort of most kind of postcode or zip code, uh, and then we're able to target people. I was going to ask you, then do you go, do you, can you go back and people who sign environmental petitions, do you sell or make available that information to somebody else who wants to do an environmental petition? What we do is we then personalize the experience in the same way you might for Amazon, uh, but often via email alerts. And so based on someone's interests, what they take action on, uh, and based on response rates, we personalize recommendations for electoral campaigns. And do, but can the campaigns buy that from you? No. They, no. So people can pay to sponsor campaigns on the site. Uh, you don't get direct, you, know, you don't sort of send emails based on that. It's sort of featured on the site as a sponsor petition right. in the same way as a sponsor tweet might be in Twitter. But you, so, another, but you, so you'll do like kind of the Amazon thing. You, you know, we've seen you sign four petitions on recycling. Here's one that might be of interest to Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what's the, what's the uh, do you have like kind of, have you, have you discovered a class of people who are kind of like habitual, you know, like what, what is, who is your like all time? Do you have someone who signed, you know, the most petitions? Oh, I mean, thousands, literally. Some people have signed almost every petition. <laughs> uh, but the people that are most, it's crazy. I don't know what they, yeah, what they have to, uh, but uh, what's notable is the increase in 
amenability, the sort of increase in likelihood of signing petitions after experiencing a victory. You know, there's a lot of skepticism about the impact of petitions, and totally understandably so. And the reason is, historically, there hasn't been a lot of demonstrated impact. And the reason is these very large sort of movements around, you know, getting President Obama to stop climate change. Very difficult to do directly. But you have these local victories on a regular basis that are inspiring people to recognize they have the capacity to make a difference in ways they didn't suspect before. Were there, there must have been petitions about issues that people wanted to be raised in the first presidential debate. Were there, I assume there were a whole bunch of those. Uh, there are a lot of, yeah, yes, there are actually a lot of those, but mostly the petitions are related to things like incremental change people can win. So as the presidential elections continue to unfold, there are all these campaigns that are winning and running, sort of even in Congress, this bill around enterprise. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a recent bill around sort of military veterans uh, and uh, having sort of clean water and a bunch of military bases. So it's sort of in the undercurrent. This isn't covered by the you know, media in many cases. It's less sexy, but things are happening. Change is happening at a local level or small specific campaigns almost every day. Okay, let's see another question. Um, in the back middle, and then we'll come up here. Yeah. Hey, the, you're mentioning about your early days seemed inspiring. Could you elaborate on those first two or three years? How did you get from idea through all that period of failure to finally success? How did you finance that, and how big was your team, and how did that go? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I was depressed. Uh, so we, we uh, started the organization with a good friend of mine from Stanford, uh, and he was a tech guy. Uh, doing everything, and I was the sort of the ideas guy telling him uh, all the things to do, and um, it was a lot easier of a job. So it was just the two of us, and we had one other uh, guy, this guy named, uh, who's from Northwestern, a friend of ours, and so three of us for the, best, the first three years. Uh, and what you do in consumer internet companies is you massively iterate. You sort of launch a certain product, you see the response uh, by the public, you see the incremental sort of numbers on Google Analytics, and then you change and shift and build additional features. And we built almost everything, right? Virtual political action committees, skills-based volunteerism, social fundraising, and almost none of it worked. And so it was only after sort of peeling back a lot of those different features that we realized what would really work with petitions. But the most important determining factor for success, and this is the case for almost any venture, especially online, is relentless determination. Right? It's actually this uh, accelerator program called Y Combinator, and a very famous guy um, who runs it says, by far, looking across all the different websites, they fund Airbnb, and this is Box and whatnot, very large consumer internet sites, the most important determining factor of the success of a team is the relentless determination of founders to do whatever is necessary to succeed. And that's what we do. We just never, ever give up. Uh, up here in the front. Hi, uh, Nancy Sattelweiss. I have a quick high-tech question for you concerning relentless and petitions. Um, every time I go to a supermarket or Trader Joe's or Target, there is always a, someone with, with a cause and a petition, and sometimes I'm interested, sometimes I don't have the time. Have you thought of coming up with an app so that when you walk out, you say, at least you can say, all right, I'll check your app. Or, yeah, or, absolutely. Or, uh, just to avoid confrontation or having to say, no, I don't have time, or that kind of negative interaction. Yeah, so our goal is to reduce the barriers of civic participation as much as possible. And one big part of this is mobile. Uh, We've just hired a large number of engineers to help work on this. And so not only will it be the case that people can, on an iPad, sign a petition, you can walk into, let's say, Target, and you can automatically see sort of geolocation that you're in Target, any campaigns that are targeting the company at that certain time, things that, you know, supply chain management or issues around, you know, policies around worker rights that you'll be able to join immediately in real time based on where you're at. Hmm. Anything? Uh, I've got some in the middle. No, I'll just give somebody a chance on that side. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, Fred Powell. 
the dis disaggregation of information delivery and the, and the idea that it's spreading it out applies to the other two themes of the conference here, energy and medicine. The Affordable Care Act is, is being challenged because that represents a disaggregation of providing of those services. Um, solar energy, we have a massive delivery system because of the, the paradigm that someone's going to control generation. Whose toes are you stepping on when you're trying to disaggregate information delivery? There's almost nobody whose toes we don't step on or people through the site do. I mean, you know, you have this sort of status quo. And all the campaigns, when they're advancing change, are going to be either offending or undermining the existing power structure of some entity. Uh, and so the question for us is, you know, how do you change incentives or how do you make it painful enough for people and stepping on their toes to want to change and move them back? Uh, and so inevitably, sort of this is, we don't aim to be confrontational because we want to be antagonistic. Uh, we aim for sort of building power, but people everywhere in a disaggregated way as a means of changing things. There's always entrenched interests that you're fighting. Although I will say one thing, which is on the corporate side in particular, uh, you end up seeing companies who, this is a great example around uh, Jamba Juice. Jamba Juice, it's a company, it's a styrofoam cups, and uh, there's a young girl who starts a petition who's a big fan of Jamba Juice. She says, look, I, I love Jamba Juice, but I hate uh, styrofoam, and I want you to commit to having compostable cups. And huge campaign, 170,000 people, I think, join. Certainly in some ways, it frustrates Jamba Juice, but there's certainly some people at Jamba Juice and stakeholders around that company that are glad there's now the impetus from the ground up to encourage them to do what many people, frankly, in the company already wanted them to do. So it's not purely antagonistic. It actually gives them now the agency to go to shareholders and the public and sort of make this commitment that might be expensive, but they can justify based upon citizen or customer pressure. Do you think, um, you know, I was thinking about, uh, you know, the kind of a, for, for brands, especially with kind of a, a youth audience that they're trying to reach, I mean, you can see how they would be very receptive to visible changes. Do you think this platform could convince Apple to drop Foxconn? It's a huge campaign, actually, around right, this issue. Right. In direct response to the NPR, now somewhat dubious coverage of the kind of the, uh, the workers' rights uh, in, in Foxconn. It's notable, so it's a campaign started from a Virginia man, ends up getting a you know, huge fan of Apple. More than 200,000 people join. There's protests in four continents around this, very distributed. Uh, and though it was revealed that some of the information was dubious, uh, the, the general underlying idea of lack of good pay and sort of harsh physical conditions was true. And, and a few weeks after that, Apple announces a substantial increase in, in hourly wages. Uh, and it was certainly not the only reason it happened, but there's some material reason. And I think what you have is you have the increased transparency of the supply chain of the actions of almost any company. It used to be the case that you could sit around a boardroom and be pretty confident that most of the decisions you made were in obscurity and the things you were doing that might undermine the rights of people in countries that most people have never been to or don't even know about uh, were sort of oblivious to most of your customers. And so it's now the case that when you're sitting around a boardroom, you have to assume two things. One is that almost any decision you make is going to be transparent. And immediately in rapid response to exposing that, there's going to be a lobbying group of customers that will fight you toe-to-toe -to -toe in a very public way. And so it doesn't mean you change every decision, but it does mean you have to recognize that if you can't justify it in public, it's very difficult to sustain. You know, the answer, a different answer to your question is that, uh, you know, historically the power to set the dialogue, to decide what the society heard and talked about was controlled by a relatively few number of people, whether in kind of the, uh, the television, you know, the mass media or politicians or anybody 
else who had a public platform to kind of shape the dialogue. And what we have now is a, uh, the capacity for mass communication without the mass media that is moving, uh, first of all, outside of the, uh, uh, the big media institutions toward big players like the campaigns themselves and now moving through medium like this toward individuals. I mean, the idea that an individual could speak to 100,000 people you know, who could do that before? It was the owner of the local newspaper had the ability to do that and nobody else. So that's, that's the disruption and the disintermediation that's going on. The, the ability to, to talk to large numbers of people and kind of get an idea in front of them is really radically democratizing. We have a question all the way up at the top. Hi. Uh, I want to follow up with your question about Foxconn. It seems to me that there's a dichotomy that exists, and that is that in those plants that you're talking about, people are working perhaps their first important job in their life, and they're sustaining themselves through the wages they make. In addition, McDonald's in Africa. I also question why is McDonald's in Africa. But I hear from Africans that McDonald's is the only nutritious, clean meal they can get. So while we need to change practices, I agree, we may not want to go so far as to stop Apple from working with Foxconn. I think a totally valid point. So we don't actually take any official position on issues like this. We're a platform that empowers people to advance the change that they seek. Uh, but it's notable, I think, one of the things that we encourage companies especially to do is to engage in public dialogue. You know, there's a, Mayor Bloomberg recently made a comment about the difficulty of governing in a context of social media where in every single situation there's a mass audience that are mobilizing against decisions he makes. And my response is, but it's not like we're sort of decision-making body. We're an accountability-demanding body of sort of citizens around the world. And so it doesn't mean that you have to change policy. Apple doesn't have to change, but it has to explain and make a public argument for why but, that's But the isn't case. the challenge, I mean, as I was trying to get at this before, that uh, the ability to organize does not really change the distribution of opinion. It just kind of ha- allows it to be more focused uh, and presented in, in kind of as, as more of a phalanx. Um, and uh, ultimately, the challenge on so many of the issues we face is finding a consensus, a, 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 some sort of working consensus for change that goes beyond your tribe. I mean, part of the challenge here is that you're making it easier for each tribe to organize and be heard and to amplify, in your word, uh, its voice. Does that get you closer or further away from, com- from coming to accommodation with at least some portion of the other tribe who, so who is you, also there? It's a great question. I'll give you an example. And again, most issues... Not the ones we talk about at a national level, but most issues are actually not all that divisive. So a quick example around corporate accountability. So uh, right now, one of the most exploitative industries in the world is a flower picking industry. And the reason is a massive chemical exposure to flower pickers, a double digit percentage of females who are pregnant, women who are pregnant while picking flowers have deformed babies, deformed babies. And so this isn't something most people want. If most people knew about this and had the capacity to mobilize around it, they'd recognize this is the wrong thing to do. Fair trade is the sort of necessary next step. And uh, there's a campaign that a woman started asking 1-800-Flowers to accept fair trade flowers for the first time. Uh, and this you know, explodes, 50,000 people join, ends up embarrassing 1-800-Flowers. And 24 hours after, they make a 180-degree turn and accept fair trade for the first time. And, and even people that were at 1-800-Flowers, I bet you cared about that as well and recognized that was the right thing to do. But because of shareholder sort of profit maximization, because of supply chain management, everyone else did the same thing. They, just, they sort of dismissed it as an issue they wouldn't address. So I think there's so many examples, so many more examples of that. But, really there but, what, is but what Bloomberg is talking about, though, is governing decisions and the ability to organize in opposition to whatever 
it is. And what this does this tend to amplify the loudest, most passionate voices. I mean, can you imagine a, uh, a petition doing well? I, maybe it will. Can you imagine a petition urging whoever wins in November to compromise with the other party to deal with the deficit and the fiscal cliff? Well, I mean, I'm sure that would take petition, off? But it probably wouldn't take off. Right. It and the reason is these are things that people, yeah, these, it's certainly there's a, it, there's a personal emotional component to many of these things. But I will note that if it is the case that there's a minority of people that are mobilizing around cigarette issues, this is, this is in part a reflection of the desire for minorities who don't have equal rights in some cases to be able to represent their voice. The issue around immigration is a great example. And so sort of empowering the least powerful is in many ways the most important thing we could do. Well, Ben, this has been a great conversation. Will you join me in thanking Ben? You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.